Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 11th, 2009, and my guest is Danny Roderick, the Ruffy Kariri Professor of International Political Economy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Danny, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Uh, thanks for your interest. Our topic today is globalization and its impact, and I want to start by quoting from a recent paper that you wrote with Margaret McMillan. Uh, you say, quote, Clearly, globalization has facilitated technology transfer and contributed to efficiencies in production. Yet the very diverse outcomes we observe among developing countries suggest that the consequences of globalization depend on the manner in which countries integrate into the global economy. In several cases, most notably China, India, and some other Asian countries, globalization's promise has been fulfilled. High productivity employment opportunities have expanded, and structural change has contributed to overall growth. But in many other cases, in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, Globalization appears not to have fostered the desirable kind of structural change. Labor has moved in the wrong direction from more productive to less productive activities, including, most notably, informality. So let's talk – end of quote. So talk first about what you mean by structural change and its relationship to productivity. In, in the paper itself, um, the, the, uh, the measure of structural change that I'm, I'm uh, using is one that is based on a – uh, nine sector, uh, disaggregation of the entire economy. Uh, so that means I have, uh, all of agriculture in one sector, all of manufacturing as one sector, all of, uh, say minerals as one sector, um, uh, the, the government sector in one sector and, and a bunch of other service sectors. So, uh, it's, it's very broad, um, patterns of structural change, uh, that I'm focusing on. Uh, going back to a, a very you know early tradition in development economics um, uh, that uh, goes back to really uh, Sir Arthur Lewis's work in the 1950s uh, when he um, developed these models of of the dual economy um, and he defined the process of of economic development as one where uh, basically uh, labor moves from the more traditional parts of the economy, uh, typically traditional agriculture, to more modern, more productive parts, uh, typically urban sectors, but uh, um, uh, uh, industry um, as, as, as a leading uh, modern, in the, uh, modern sector. So I wanted to see, um, you know, what has happened to that idea, um, to, to what extent this process uh, still captures what's going on in, in, in the developing world. And there were some surprises, uh, which you mentioned in the quote that you gave. But that transition uh, from urban, excuse me, from rural to urban is 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 going on all over the world, right? It, it's definitely happening in in massive amounts in China, right? It's definitely happening in large amounts in India. Is right. that the general direction also in Latin America and Africa? Uh, it, it, that um, has, um, it, to, to a large extent, that is true. I mean, that the, the you know, the, the, I mean, I think last year was the first year when the the total number of people in the world that were in, in urban areas exceeded the number of people in rural areas. So that's, there's, there's generally a trend toward urbanization, that is for sure. There are countries in our sample where that is not happening, um, including at least one African country, surprisingly. But, uh, you know, it is, uh, that is in general, the trend that is happening. Uh, what we are uh, capturing, however, are, is the fact that uh, some of the countries in our sample are um, are able to um, uh, increase employment um, in some of the more productive parts of the urban sectors, whether those are uh, some of the more uh, sort of the whether it's the manufacturing sector or it is uh, you know, some. Uh, services that are closely linked with the manufacturing sector, um, and those are countries where um, you know the, the the structural tends to promote um, overall um, uh, productivity because the uh, you know the you know the economy's resources are moving in the right direction, and there are other cases where um, if you look only at, for example, how 
manufacturing has done in a lot of Latin American countries, you walk away with the impression that it's been quite an extraordinary performance. In fact, you know, that is one of the most surprising things um, in, in this paper, because a lot of the work that has focused on the performance of um, specific industries um, in Latin America, for example, during the period since 1990, when the region opened up, opened up to globalization, um, had looked at how manufacturing had fared um, in response to opening up to trade. And there's a very common finding in this literature, which is that um, the, the, you know, the, the firms um, that, um, you know, that the productivity increased tremendously and it increased more, the more subject uh, individual uh, industries within manufacturing were uh, subject to the forces of international competition, which, which sort of stands to reason. Um, but what this hadn't looked at, this literature hadn't looked at, is sort of the, the fact that in, in, in many of these uh, manufacturing sectors, increases in productivity takes place through um, technological upgrading, through uh, increased capital accumulation, and not employment increases. Often, in fact, employment shrinks, so we get this phenomenon of rationalization. So part of the increase in productivity is due to uh, the rationalization of production. Now, this wouldn't be a problem if the labor that's displaced uh, from these rapidly productivity-increasing firms would go to other productive uh, parts of the economy, but that's really what hasn't happened, and that's what our, our, our research shows, that there has been a, a massive movement in the wrong direction from these more productive, more open parts of the economy to the um, less productive services. Um, just, just to recap for a minute, if you see in some aggregate sense that productivity is growing, it could be because there's, there's more output. Uh, right. But what we often are going to care about is output per worker. And if output per worker is growing right. dramatically because of investments in technology and right. capital, right. But, but actually the number of workers could be falling right. because of the productivity of capital. Right. Uh, the question is, what do those displaced workers do? And in, in a developed country, and I want to come back occasionally to talk about contrasts and similarities in your stories with a developed country, we often talk about the virtues of creative destruction. So right. a new technology comes along, it right. begins cheaper, more efficient, produce some good, and the new workers go find something else to do, and total right. output expands. There's more choice, more variety, things, lower prices, higher standard of living, et cetera. Yep. So the question is, how well do labor markets work, part of the question, exactly. in, in these different economies where do those workers go? And so what do we know about that? Where do displaced workers go when these economies become more productive? I mean, first of all, I mean, as you say, I think this distinction between what seems to be happening in the developed countries and what's happening in the developing countries is very, very important. Um, in, there has been tremendous amount of structural change in the advanced countries as well. In particular, um, manufacturing employment has shrunk uh, as a share of total employment uh, in, in pretty much in all industrial countries. Now, this in itself, uh, you know, doesn't isn't reflected in overall uh, reduced growth in productivity for the economy because people who are employed, who are uh, displaced from manufacturing in the rich countries, don't necessarily go to sectors where their productivity is significantly lower. Could be a little lower could be a little lower, but, but I mean, you know, there's a chart in the paper which shows that the intersectoral variation in labor productivity uh, tends to significantly come down uh, over the course of development. So this intersectoral, so the, the intersectoral variation in labor productivity is huge in the developed countries, in, part, in the developing countries, in particular the, the, the lowest income among them. And if you do, if you look at what happens to those intersectoral, like the coefficient of variation of, of uh, these uh, uh, labor productivities uh, uh, across different sectors, and by the time you look at the rich countries, the, the, the gaps have really shrunk. Give them, so the give key them is, as you say, why is it that you know that that you know these gaps aren't being equalized? But you can turn this question on its head and you say that well, this is the big question about uh, development. Because in every developing country, you have a whole bunch of activities that are actually very productive. Um, the problem is that they're, very significant, they're a very tiny part of the economy. Yeah. And the question is, why isn't labor and other resources moving sufficiently rapidly into those activities? All right, so give the example, tell the story of Malawi that you give in the paper, if you can, off the top of your head. 
about the mining sector well, the, the, as an example. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the mining sector. I mean, here is a sector you know, the, uh, that is very capital-intensive, um, and therefore labor productivity is very high. In fact, so high in Malawi that it matches uh, um, output per worker in the U.S. economy as a whole. So, in fact, if you could stuff all of uh, Malawi's labor force into the mining sector, um, you know, Malawi would be as rich as the United States is. Uh, but of course, uh, you can't, and nor, nor would it really necessarily make sense um, to um, have the mining sector employ all those workers because of the amount of capital it would require. Uh, but you know, the fact is that the, the workers that you cannot get into um, um, uh, mining end up uh, in, in, you know, either in agriculture, informal activities, petty trade, where their productivity is, is really uh, just a tiny fraction of what it is in, in, in mining. Let me let, let me ask a more basic question about productivity generally because the Malawi example I think brings it out. Um, if you look at many manufacturing facilities in the United States, uh, a very small number of workers in any one facility are producing enormous amounts of output. And the, the two industries I've looked at are uh, factories I've actually toured in one case, the pencil manufacturing and uh, the uh, egg production of chickens. In both of those industries, the number of people involved has shrunk dramatically in the United States. And, of course, some of those jobs have left the United States. But there's still quite a bit of, of production and of chicken eggs in the United States, right, because it's hard, they're hard to ship. So in those facilities, a very small number of workers produce a billion eggs or more a year. And there's a temptation to say they're very productive, those workers. And they are in the sense of average productivity – but it's really not the workers that are productive. It's the machinery that is smart and allows a relatively unskilled worker to work in that factory and look like the source of the productivity. In fact, what's really going on is that the labor embedded in the machinery is where the productivity lies. And and the, the workers are there mainly just to see that the machinery doesn't break down. They don't really do anything other than keep an eye on things. And so when you think about Malawi, it's not – so even though the productivity might be very high uh, relative to the United States, those workers themselves are not particularly skilled or productive. They're, I assume they're working with unbelievably skilled technology and machinery that could be done by anybody, but many, many types of people. So their they're, they're true marginal product is not very high. Um, well, they're not. They're, I mean, it, it, it depends. I mean, but, you know, the, so the, you know, in principle, if, if the, if the, if, the, if, if now, these economies were working like uh, textbook market economies, and and I said earlier that sort of the, the big puzzle is you know why you know these gaps aren't closing. So you know, what the gaps that ought to be closing are really gaps in terms of the marginal value product of labor, right? So if if, if these you know markets in these economies worked well, and if the governments didn't impose artificial impediments on uh, labor moving across sectors, um, then what we would expect is that, um, uh, that, that wages and value marginal product of labor would be, uh, would be equalized uh, across uh, different sectors. Um, now, of course, you know, that, that, you know, that might mean uh, that, you know, that, that you know, at the margin, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, it would be beneficial for the mining sector in some sense to want to expand um, and hire more workers. Uh, given the huge gap that there is in, in 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 wages between what effectively they pay in mining and what they pay in, in the other sectors, and so that, you know, but there's a there's I think there's a difference here between mining where you know sort of you know there's it, it, it has because precisely because it's so capital intensive and it depends so much on a particular resource, it has limited employment um, absorptive absorption yeah. capacity. You don't want to tri- if you if you quadrupled your mining by adding labor and capital, you'd lower the productivity very perhaps very dramatically exactly. because you wouldn't be able to exactly. sell it at the market exactly. price. And exactly. You'd have so, before. So that's, so that's the sense in which I think the, the, the mining example, the Malawian mining example, you know, is 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 really only you know um, interesting for, in terms of the the, the orders of magnitude, yeah, but see not it. as a counterfactual, as a as a realistic counterfactual for what the Malawian. Uh, economy ought to look like. The more interesting question is with respect to sectors that you know you, that they can expect expand. So you look like an, into an economy like Ethiopia, um, and um, 
And it's surprising that many things that ought to be produced and, you know, could be produced in Ethiopia are actually not being produced. You know, you know there are sort of, you know, matches, you know, if, if, you know, are being imported from Kenya, cardboard boxes are being imported from other countries. Now, there's no reason why Ethiopia cannot actually produce these things. And you know that, you know, it, you know that little, um, you know, factories that produce simple consumer goods like that um, would uh, hire workers and pay them wages that are multiple of what those you know, workers can produce in, in agriculture. Yet there is something in these economies that you don't get these new industries uh, from taking off, and, and you, that prevents these industries from expanding sufficiently to absorb more labor. How much of that is due to um, what we would sometimes call red tape, uh, barriers to starting com- companies? You know, Hernando de Soto has done work on this, yeah. obviously. I think yeah. the World Bank's done extensive work on it. Yeah. And they find that in many poor countries, it's extremely difficult to start a new enterprise. Yeah. Is that part of the story, a big part, almost all of it? Any idea? Well, the big question here is, and, and, you know, sort of you can think about why uh, this transformation, why these gaps aren't closed. Uh, You know, you can have two kinds of explanations. One is, you know, uh, you know, government failures. Governments are screwing things up. And and red tape would be a a clear, you know, um, uh, example of that. You know, others mentioned sort of corruption, right? Right, Uh, sure. You know, you know. You know, if you have a, if you're operating petty trade, you know, it's, uh, you know, the government cannot come and tax you the moment you actually have a workshop somewhere, fix the boat, and then you're, you're subject to, uh, um, you know, the government, you know, taxing you, the inspectors coming and asking for bribes and so forth, and you might figure it's not really worth your while. Um, and in more generally, sort of, you know, property rights and, 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 and sort of, uh, you know, the, the overall um, enforcement of, um, of contracts. And, rule of and, law. And the rule of law, right? I mean, you know, if there's, you know, if there's no rule of law, then, you know, it's, you're okay working as a, as a, as a barber on the corner store, cor- you know, because, uh, you know, everything you need is, is all, you know, in person, you know, on the basis of personal relationships, you don't have to buy a lot of inputs, you don't have to deal with customs, you don't have to deal with tax uh, inspectors all that much. Um, so, it, it, you know, all these, you know, problems with with uh, the government and the and the legal and contractual environment clearly impose disproportionate costs on the modern parts of the economy compared to the traditional part. So that's one reason why the modern part is underdeveloped. So that's sort of under the rubric of of uh, you know government failures. But I yeah. think often you know uh, you know market failures are are, are very uh, important um, as well. Uh, and those market failures are things like uh, coordination failures. I mean, you know, if you want to operate, I mentioned a cardboard, um, you know, factory, okay, then you need high-quality paper or you need, you know, highly, you know, particular kind of workers who are used to showing up at work and doing a good job. And, and so you need all kinds of complementary, you know, inputs and arrangements around you to, for this to make sense. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, you... You have pineapples, but you know you don't have pineapple canning, and and then you know you say, okay, I can export this, but in order for you to be able to think of exporting canned pineapples, you need the national airline or some airline to have cargo service, and you know they're not going to establish the cargo service until you know they see a demand for it, and it's a chicken and egg problem, and there are all kinds of you know learning uh, externalities as well. That that there is a problem of what we call um, cost discovery, which is that you know the, the you know, the first investor who invests in, let's say, the cardboard factory uh, prov- provides a very valuable signal to other potential investors as to whether the cost structure of the economy is conducive to producing cardboards or not. Um, and But, you know, if you end up being a failure, you, you know, all the costs are private. If you're successful, then you're sending a positive signal, then you cannot fully internalize all the benefits of that because others come in. Um, on the on the basis of that valuable signal, so there are learning externalities, coordination externalities um, under the sort of the general rubric of uh, of market failures. Now, so the list is long uh, of why uh, you know 
these gaps exist and they don't close sufficiently rapidly. Obviously, the trick in specific contexts is trying to figure out which are, you know, the most binding um, constraint in any particular setting. And sometimes it'll be market failures, and sometimes it'll be government failures. And I can give you examples of both. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, a few years ago we were in uh, in, uh, in in El Salvador, um, an economy which had really done tremendous amount in terms of just liberalizing its economy, privatizing, stabilizing. You know, there's you know, there was nothing essentially wrong that you can put a point to in terms of of the the, the contractual legal environment um, and, and and sort of it wasn't a government that was just sort of you know hell bent on taxing everything quite to the op- quite to the uh, um, um, uh, um, uh, opposite and and nothing except for um, garments had taken off and garments had taken off because of some special trade privilege in the US market but nothing except for that was going on you ask people you know if I give you 25 million dollars what would you invest in in the Salvadoran economy and they would tell they would think about it for a little bit and then say well, can I put it in Miami? Do I have to put it in? Do I have to invest in, in El Salvador? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the kind of environment where you know it, it's really you know it's you know when you don't you know see any Schumpeterian rents because we need we forget that we, when we think about Schumpeterian rents, we think it's just a pro, you know it's about the rich countries. So rich countries, you know, Schumpeterian rents are important for innovators because, you know, they get a new product and they need to sort of ensure that they have at least some rents from investing in those highly costly, high risky activities. But in developing countries, too, there are, you know, Schumpeterian, you need Schumpeterian rents uh, for, you know, investors be willing to go into very different new areas, yep. modern industries. Capital likes to get a return. Exactly, <laughs> and, like and it, when it's risky and when there are you know huge spillovers to the rest of the economy, you know the 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 private return is going to be way below what the social return is. So you're not going to get the right kind of of transformation. So in you know in that in that kind of a setting, you know it's uh, you know it's not government failure that's blocking transformation. It's just a bunch of you know market failures associated with low levels of income. And there, actually, you think the government, you know, you do want the government to come in and actually do some, you know, stimulating. Well, let me ask you about that because I'm a little bit uh, skeptical of of that terminology, calling that a market failure. It's very uncertain. Uh, You could say the same thing in the United States. You gave me $25 million. Uh, I wouldn't put it in Miami, by the way. I'd I'd think, oh, you know, where's the best place to put it? And, of course, it's not clear. If If you had to make me, if you're making me put one bet down as opposed to investing in and the equivalent statement to putting it in Miami would be I'll, p- I'll put it in an index mutual fund. That's also not much of a of an answer, right? right. So if you say I had to put a bet down on a particular mm-hmm. company or a particular sector, well, it's a little bit – it's hard to know. Right. So that uncertainty is is inherent in any economic situation. Right. But it's I agree that it's qualitatively different and obviously quantitatively different in a poor country. In a poor country, the decision's hard for a different reason. In a rich country, it's hard because eh, everything's pretty similar – it still could make a mistake, but the expectations fairly similar. There, there could be an enormous return, as you point out, uh, that's waiting. If I could just knew which leap to take, which direction is it? Cardboard boxes? Is it? Is it something else? And um, it's certainly not clear the government could do it any better. Well, I mean, you, you know, you're right that I mean, you know, it's part of it is just the uncertainty. But my story goes beyond the uncertainty because, as you say, if it's just uncertainty, there is actually no market failure. The market failure arises from the fact that there is no way that the um, that the pioneer investor in a new area can recoup um, uh, the, the the full social return that it, it generates. Um, so the, the the parallel that you want to think of is this. Um, in a in a in a rich country, we have a patent system that says that if you come up with a new product, um, we are going to um, allow you um, to earn monopoly rents from this product. Why? Well, because you know if if the knowledge that you generate becomes freely available to all, then you earn no rents on on this product, and then you know you lose all the investment in R and D that you made. Um, and therefore, you know, the competitive level of profits isn't enough to pay you for the, you know, you know, investment in R and D. So we need to give you, you know, we need to give you some rents. 
So the patent system is meant to overcome uh, this, uh, you know, this, this market imperfection in the market for knowledge. Um, I think that the parallel in the developing country is that when we're talking about firms in, in El Salvador, let's say, who are not going to be investing in new high-tech products, but they're going to be investing in new products that are, that are new to their own economy. And that provides exactly the same kind of, of learning spillovers that a new, new product in a, in, a, um, uh, in, a, in a rich country does. So the, the first investor, for example, that sets up a call center, let's say in Jamaica, and points to Jamaica as a potential area where you can successfully run call centers for you know, the universe of all potential firms, investors in the world, that initial pioneer investor has provided huge amount of, of, of social surplus uh, to, um, to Jamaica. And I think it does make sense for Jamaica to want to subsidize the initial investor in that. And often, you know, those investments will not pay. It's just the, the nature of this, because, you know, it's, this is all based on the idea that some of these investments will actually not work out. So some of these will be mistakes. Um, but the, the economic logic of this is that you want to subsidize the, the, the incumbent investors in new areas. Okay, well, I disagree. Uh, I'm going to make one more sure. attempt. You can counter back, but I think we ought to move on. The reason I disagree is that, first of all, it's, there's a marginal and an inframarginal decision there. One is to open a call center at all, and the second is how big to make it. Of course, you don't know. Either of those is uncertain. You don't know whether opening a call center is going to pay off, and you don't know whether it should be a big one or a small one, uh, how much in, to invest. But it's very easily the case that if the return is very high, even, there's uncertainty. Yes, that part we've agreed you can't get rid of. But if the return is very high, it's true you won't capture all the return. There's even a bigger return beyond that to other investors because they learn that, that Jamaica has, a, say, a skilled labor force. And you're taking a chance on that, and you're, you're giving evidence that that's the case. Or you're giving evidence, say, about the reliability of the Jamaican government to keep its promises. There's a lot of different – aspects and margins that, that these decisions could be relevant for, right, and could provide information beyond just your narrow amount. But but if you, if you make an enormous amount, if the fact that you don't capture all of it, the fact that there's spillovers doesn't really need, mean that there, there should be – there's no implication that, should, that you need a subsidy to do it. It just means you don't capture all of it. Now, it's true. You might, make, you might make, not make as big a decision, the right size decision. But even if that's true, and even if I'm wrong about this, I still don't see how a government subsidy – to that call center is going to be a good idea, given that the government's probably going to use political uh, motivations in setting that subsidy, and th there's no reason to think they're going to do make the right decision. Well, I mean, let, let's take the first point first. You made two points. One is that it didn't make sense economically. The other is that even if it did, it's empirical. That, uh, yeah, yeah. politically, it's, <laughs> it's not going to work out. I, I think economically the argument is this. You're right that to the extent that the investors subsequently earns some degree of extra normal profit, um, then, uh, you know, he's willing to engage in the sort of the search cost on behalf of others who, who don't necessarily have to incur that search cost. But think about a call center. That's a competitive industry. So the industry, so the, 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 the initial investor who's going to try to figure out whether Jamaicans are actually really suitable uh, for providing that service in the call center is actually incurring an investment then if he is successful, um, if subsequent investors can just come in and just you know, bid his workers away, and this being a competitive industry, he can only look forward to normal profits subsequently, then he has no incentive to coming, of coming in. Um, so it, 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 so if, if, if there is enough extra profits for some reason, which will which happens if, you know, for another market, you know, imperfection, right, if the markets aren't sufficiently competitive. So you can rely on markets not being sufficiently competitive to provide those incentives for the incumbents. But, you know, these developing countries are getting into the kinds of areas where, you know, they're competing with everybody. Margins are, you know, are, are, are not small. Um, are, are small. Uh, so you can't rely on these investments, you know, the guy who's going to be providing, you know, you know canned pineapples to the U.S. market or, you know, the investors in, in, in call centers uh, or, you know, the guys who are producing cut flowers, you know, all new industries in these kinds of settings necessarily to earn extra uh, uh, supernormal profits once they come in. Um, and yet, from the perspective of the economy, they generate huge social surplus because, 
you know, once you demonstrate that cut flowers can be profitably grown in, let's say, Ethiopia, uh, you have an area of employment uh, where productivity is much larger than, than where it was uh, um, elsewhere. Um, so, so the, I think there there is a there is a good economic uh, reason for for you know if the problem that's blocking these rise of new industries uh, is what what uh, what I've called these cost discovery externalities um, that that you want to subsidize. But you want to subsidize you know if the logic is this, you want to subsidize just the incumbents. What I think a lot of governments then go on and do wrong is to actually just subsidize a lot of uh, copycats as well. Uh, which, given the logic of, of the, given the economic logic I just laid out, of course you want to subsidize only the the the, the income, I mean the initial investor, not the subsequent ones. But this is only one of the economic arguments uh, about why you may want to use uh, you know certain kinds of industrial policy. Now the second argument about you know whether you can do it or not, whether it gets sort of um, you know uh, political motives get in or not, it's a huge. I, I'm I'm happy to talk to you about that. I don't know if you want to though. So tell me if you want to take it. Well, the, what I, let's let's move to something related, and if if it's and you can bring some of those ideas in. I, I think the most striking uh, point in the paper, and I think the central issue, really facing. The debate of globalization today is we have these these two incredible success stories of China and India. We have a, a, some smaller but still dramatic successes, most of them in Asia. What do we understand about what they're doing right and what other countries perhaps are doing wrong? Or again, it could just be structural, internal to the the nature of the of the country, but some of it's policy related, obviously. Why is it that it's so? Di- what do we know about why it's so different? Um, if we know anything, what do, do we know anything about that? I mean, I'll 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 I'll, I'll put forth a hypothesis, um, and I think it's consistent with the story in the paper. But I think it's it's a story that requires more empirical substantiation. But it's a it's a, it's a story that I find um, in line with, with what I see. Uh, you need to com- you need to compare the way in which China. Uh, opened itself up to the world economy and globalized with the way that um, Latin America did. Latin America did it in a way that was fully consistent with our standard trade theory. Standard trade theory says you lower your ba- your tariff barriers, um, your import competing firms that are not sufficiently productive shrink, and the labor that's released from those industries go to a whole bunch of other places, including, notably, uh, your export-oriented industries where you have comparative advantage in, uh, where their productivity at the margin is going to be higher. So, in fact, you get, from opening up to the world economy, that's what standard trade theory predicts, you get an overall uh, higher lab- level of, of uh, labor productivity in the economy because you're reducing misallocation. Now, if the... Uh, if this story works, doesn't work quite in this way because of all the problems we've discussed just now, which is that there are certain obstacles, whether they're market failures or whether government failures, that prevent the sufficiently rapid rise of new industries where you are going to be really competitive. Uh, then uh, what happens is what we observe in Latin America, which is that uh, the uh, import competing industries, true, they have to become more competitive, so they do shrink. Um, but the labor that's released doesn't necessarily end up in uh, industries that are significantly more productive. And that's exactly what we observe in the in the data. That's what we've called sort of this, you know, growth reducing structural change. Um, now, what how China differs from this pattern is that uh, they have opened up very differently. They have opened up at the margin. Uh, so rather than so look at you know the, the structure of the economy in in China, let's say in the 1980s when uh, they began to open up, uh, they had a whole bunch of uh, state enterprises uh, operating relatively inefficiently uh, behind barriers to trade and huge support from the state. Now the standard strategy for liberalization would have been to tell them uh, just 
remove those barriers, remove those supports. Stand on uh, your own two feet, yeah. Right, and then so then you create these new industries. That's not how they've opened up. Uh, how they've opened up is they kept all those industries in place, all those supports in place, but they created at the margin incentives for new investments in export-oriented areas. So they created the special economic zones. They created all kinds of subsidies for exports and new non-traditional products at the margin. So they turned towards world markets without pulling the rug from underneath these uh, sort of industries with medium level of productivity when you look at the economy as a whole. See, these state enterprises aren't as productive as firms in the special economic zones, but they're still much more productive than the rural areas or, you know, doing petty trade. So that's the problem that they have avoided, which, um, uh, which, uh, which Latin America has not. So then I guess the question would be, I'm not an expert on China. I don't know how much you know about it, but how much of China's employment growth in urban areas, which has been extraordinary, right? We're talking hundreds of millions of people in the last 15, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. Moving from rural activity to, to urban activity. How much of that is new enterprises um, either started domestically or by foreign investment, right? Because yeah. that's the thing that's not happening with yeah. the displaced workers in Latin America and Africa. Yeah. Do we have any idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, I can tell as opposed you. To, of, as opposed to the expansion of existing ones that are already kind of doing right. stuff. Right, right. Now, uh, I can't tell you in terms of, of numbers of enterprises, but I mean, so, but, but it is clear that what has happened, for example, that, that for example, the share of um, employment in manufacturing um, has steadily increased in China way beyond is only recently has begun to shrunk, um, whereas in Latin America, for example, it it um, it began to shrunk. It began to shrink prematurely. Uh, so if you look at sort of cross-country benchmarks in terms of what happens to employment in manufacturing over the course of development, what you experienced in countries like Latin America is a premature deindustrialization. Um, and, uh, and 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 in, in China, um, if anything, uh, the other way around. So what I what I can tell uh, is that that China managed to um, provide incentives for the growth of its manufacturing enterprises. Now, whether through we know that there's a huge amount of new entry. So, but I, I can't give you a specific number on on that in the comparative perspective. But as you point out, it's so it's such an interesting way to think about it. We can think about differences between sectors having sectors having different productivities within a country, but of course we can also think across countries. And what's happened in the last one of the things that's happened in the last fifteen years is the the extraordinary opportunity to profitably produce things in China is sucking capital and, and and technology into China away from Brazil, away from uh, African countries that, that might have produced those things. And right. instead, plus and, and there are ne- there are some you know there are some externalities of shipping and, and infrastructure that China has is able to either create or has had before. So as a result, it's it, you know productivity increases there driving the flow of capital there. And now, as you point out, it's finally gotten to the point where those are being exhausted, right. and we're seeing a, a decrease in Chinese manufacturing employment as a percentage of the total because as technology continues to improve, you don't need as many people to make the stuff. Right. What is that? But that's a very depressing, of course, every poor nation struggling to deal with this that used to be an exp- a, a manufacturing center. Mexico, is, I think, is having a tough time. They're close to the United States, which is a great advantage, but they're not as cheap as China. So they've got to offset that um, that right. price difference with a, with a, with the transportation savings, and they can't always do that. So it still raises the question, you know, given that the world's an increasingly dynamic place, you, you want to make it easy as you can for uh, innovative, creative people, whether they're your own citizens or others, to find ways to employ people, start enterprises. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and and the problem is that many of these uh, sort of enterprises, where you know countries of, of Africa or Latin America are being successful, aren't generating a lot of employment. So this is this is precisely the problem. I, I think you know 
there's another side to all of this, which is the role of the exchange rate. I mean, you know, there's, you know, I, I say that there is no better industrial policy than an undervalued currency, um, and 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 this is one thing that Latin American countries have systematically gotten wrong, including most notably uh, Mexico. Uh, you know, if you, you know, one thing that. Um, has repeatedly happened in countries that have let their currencies float and have basically had monetary policy regimes that say, we don't care where the exchange rate goes. That's just a market-determined variable. Then you open up your capital account, money comes in, um, your currency appreciates, uh, and it, it basically kills um, sort of you know, new investments at the margin um, in, in, in tradable industries, in particular in manufacturers. And that's what has happened throughout Latin America. Asian countries have been very careful uh, to prevent that from happening. Of course, you know, maybe you know, China has gone overboard with uh, undervaluing its currency. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, in terms of just this business of promoting new industries, I think, you know, part of it is, is you know, industrial policy, and we can discuss how effective that is. Uh, but, you know, part of it uh, is, is really, um, uh, you know, a competitive currency because, you, you mentioned before that you know industrial policy has the problem that um, it becomes politicized very quickly. Then you have to figure out where you know who you're going to select and so forth. The beauty of the uh, exchange rate on uh, valuation is that it's it's across the board. You don't have to pick. Uh, you basically you know if your currency is undervalued by 10%, uh, all tradable industries are being subsidized uh, across the board by 10%. Um, and I think that's. You know that that helps a lot. Furthermore, when your currency is overvalued uh, because of capital inflows and so forth, no amount of of industrial policy can really undo the effect of that. Uh, because the, you know, like a twenty percent overvaluation of your exchange rate, there's no way you're going to overdo it. I mean, to undo it or compensate for it uh, by microeconomic policies. So you know. So those things can get microeconomic policies can get very easily swamped by these, uh, you know, macro prices. So that again, I think, has been a very big uh, difference between Asia and and, and Latin America. Um, so what happens in Latin America is that they get locked into a pattern of specialization that's much more intensive in natural resources and primary products. Um, and those sectors don't generate a whole lot of employment. And they also know, generate a lot of political rent seeking. They, they generate they're bad for governance, they're bad for politics for that reason. And so it, it's it, it's 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 a, it's a it's a lousy dynamic. I don't think you know it was all that preordained that China or for that matter you know other countries in the region like Asia and Taiwan before would have necessarily ended up being manufacturing powerhouses. They decided to become manufacturing powerhouses, and they they were became successful at it. Yeah, I think again, I I think it's somewhat misleading. I think what what's really happened is that um, the technology is driving that. Right? It's not um, it's not that that China got good at at making things. They allowed people to bring in the capital that made their citizens the vehicle for that change friend of mine's involved in the retail clothing business. He said 30 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, a sweater factory in China was a bunch of women with knitting needles. And there's a limit to how productive you can be with with a pair of knitting. You can go a little faster, you know, but but the but the room for improvement's relatively small and that's not how they make sweaters in China anymore. Yeah. They make them with the same machinery they would use, I think, I suspect that they would use in South Carolina if uh to the extent we still have a few Textile factories in South Carolina. I don't think we have any sweater factories, but um, let me ask you one question about the currency thing, because I'm I'm a, agnostic to skeptical about it, and then I want to turn to some other questions related to the United States. The United States people claim that the Chinese currency undervaluations hurt manufacturing jobs, and and um, China's um, strategic use of currency is is helping them and hurting us. It seems like a strange argument for us. I Again, we can maybe talk about whether it's different for Ethiopia, but but for the United States, uh, if they're subsidizing their currency and making our stuff cheap for us to buy, we're getting a big improvement in uh, the price level that allows us to have a larger uh, accumulation of material stuff. That's an increase in our standard of living. True, it displaces workers potentially in manufacturing, but our labor market does work pretty well. They get put into other things, and basically – 
that is going to be good for the United States on average. I can understand how in a, in Mexico it might not be um, if their labor market doesn't work very well. But it seems like the right answer to that is try to improve their labor market and not try to get into a currency war. Well, I, mean, I think you're, 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 you're largely right about the United States in, in normal circumstances, you know, given that labor markets work well, given that there aren't huge discrepancies in, uh, labor, in, 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 in um, labor productivities at the margin across different types of economic activities. You know, you might say, well, the structure of production in the United States is relatively immaterial. It doesn't matter. And if, if you know, China wants to give us huge terms of trade gains by selling well, they give us, yeah, if they want to give us so that, clothes, so that, that's free fine. toys, right? And and, and and moreover, since labor markets there don't work that well, and there there are huge gaps between productivity in the manufacturing and the rural sector, with the reserve, you know, huge amounts of you know reserve uh, army of workers and uh, surplus workers in China. For them, it does the structural production does matter. So it actually is it's a, it's a from a global standpoint, it's a welfare you know efficiency enhancing policy for them. Those to two be, countries. Yeah. So uh, now that's that, that makes perfect sense. I think to, uh, up until the point where you know you know you know you get in the United States and has a nine percent unemployment rate, and then you have to start asking the question, uh, you know, to what extent that is still true. So there's that there's that question about what happens whether. You know, if you believe that there is um, some element of Keynesian uh, unemployment in the United States today, then uh, the argument about the uh, the external deficit in the United States being a gift to U.S. consumers, you know, is, is only part part way true. Yeah, Keynes, but, uh, Keynes became a protectionist in the '30s. Uh, Keynes himself, who right. was once a, a, a very strong Precisely. free trader, Precisely. found himself advocating uh, protectionism in the '30s. Something I find mysterious and strange, but yes, it's no, a, no, it's but an it, argument. It made sense. It made it, it, it made, made sense within that that logic, and it's still. Made, I mean, so without retaliation, and yeah. Well, well I mean, there's that, that is that there's the coordination problem, of course. Then you know, if every country does that, I mean, so the argument here would be, you know, of, you know, it would be far better to reach an agreement with um, with China um, on the exchange rate front than have this kind of protection uh, war. Um, so, and you're right also that this is, you know, even under normal circumstances, is a bigger issue for developing countries like Mexico because, you know, for them too, the structure of production matters. Um, and, uh, you know, you might say, well, you know, let them deal with better labor market policies. Uh, but I think, you know, one thing that I've learned working on, on developing countries is uh, that that you you can't, you know, you know, you you are always in a second best world, yeah, and, and sure. you know, it, I think often we just say, you know, pick the first best, and 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 that just becomes, you know, it's it's often escapism because you are inherent in a second best world, given that that is not the only distortion you're talking about. Everything is 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 uh, is is, uh, yeah. is entangled with something else, and often the reforms that work best are those that. Are second best reforms that tend to sort of uh, uh, isolate some adverse second best interaction that would have happened somewhere else in the economy and so forth. So you have, you have to be more pragmatic there and, and, and not simply say, well, just do the first best. Well, I don't know when it, when it's that complicated. I'm not sure what pragmatic means. But let's let's go to the United States because uh, you said something a few minutes ago that that you hear people starting to say uh, about the United States, which I've. I find a little bit strange, but it but it certainly is is parallel, which is that the sectors that are growing in the United States uh, recently that has been say the technology sector, they're not very labor intensive. Um, Google and Facebook, the most dramatic successes in in the technology area, they they hire tens of thousands of people, but they don't hire much more than that. Uh, so the people ask, you know, where's the new employment going to come from? How much do you think our Sort of an not sort of our anemic labor market recovery as part of the recovery from the recession is structural versus other possible explanations. It's just that you know we put a whole bunch of people into housing. Um, we we pulled a whole bunch of people into housing between 1995 and 2005. That was easy. The world went along kind of well. Then we tried to. Unfortunately, uh, we all of a sudden the economy found itself with too many carpenters, electricians, and uh, drywall 
applicators, and they had to find something else to do, and they seem to be struggling to do it. Uh, what's going on? Any ideas? No, I, I, I think you know, that there is that, that there's definitely that, that structural uh, uh, you know misallocation given what what the U.S. economy has inherited. So there's definitely a need for a structural adjustment, as, uh, you know, going forward, and definitely growth is going to be slow until you get that readjustment accomplished. Um, you know, I, I do not study the U.S. economy, so I, you know, I don't. You know, I don't have a very good sense about this debate. I mean, you know, I I, I find it hard to believe that there is not an element of um, you know Keynesian uh, demand side uh, problems when you know, unemployment shoots up to that level. Um, so uh, I, I you know I'm I'm inclined to believe that there is a a, a Keynesian, Keynesian um, uh, element in this, um, but. Is is more an impression than a guess, than than really based on on substantive analysis. Appreciate the honesty. It's good. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody knows a lot about it, but we certainly you can certainly hear a lot more dramatic uh, claims along either side. Um, let let me first. I want to pr- introduce a, a parallel, which is, uh, and and then I want to turn to some broader issues. One of the issues that's come up on this program before is that uh, in a, in general, when people dump goods in the United States, free trade. Economists say that's good, uh, but somehow when we dump in foreign countries, it's not good. And why isn't the logic the same? And really, what we've been talking about today, for those out there who remember those earlier discussions, is that when labor markets don't work very well, for whether it's government or market issues, uh, some of the standard conclusions of trade policy may not be as um, similar in poor and rich countries. And I just want to make that parallel, which I, th- I think is uh, is very interesting. The general question I want to ask you is is about globalization. Partly in the current in the current climate we're in, which is one of not so not so healthy economic activity, high unemployment in lots of countries. Um, where do you think globalization is headed? Where do you think it ought to head? You are renowned as a skeptic uh, and and a contrarian on on trade issues. Uh, try to give us a summary of what you think are important. What do you think is important in these areas for both policy and 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 the uh, and what do you think is happening? I mean, I, I think we've we've come out of the the, the crisis with a sense that um, that you need you know much better regulation, for example, for financial markets. Um, that that financial globalization has gone beyond um, the uh, the regulatory infrastructure that that you needed to to sustain it, um, and that therefore you need to complete that that regulatory infrastructure. So we have efforts in the G20, the Basel Committee, and the uh, Financial Stability Board. And, and so forth. And I just don't see, I mean, if you just use the analogy with domestic financial markets, you know, sort of we've, we've learned, you know, after you know, centuries that they just need, uh, you know, uh, a whole abs- alphabet soup of, of regulatory authorities that we're still fine-tuning to, you know, try to get it straight. Um, and be- behind all of that, there is, you know, a pol- whole political structure and, and so forth. And and just you know, extend that logic to the global level, and there's, there's no way we're going to get you know anything like the global uh, equivalent of the kind of domestic regulations that we have to sustain domestic finance. Um, and and you know, given that, uh, you know, the uh, either we're going to get regulations at the global level uh, that that will be very weak and effective uh, won't serve us at all in the, until the next crisis. Um, or we'll get sort of like the you know lowest common denominator, you know, so because that's the only one that you can get countries to to agree to. So I think that's that's the path that that you know that we are moving down. We were so obsessed um, at you know ensuring that we minimize transactions costs associated with national borders and global finance. Uh, that that you know we need to coordinate and harmonize to the extent possible at the global level, and I find that I, I just think that's a dead end. Um, now, if you agree with me, then that's a dead end, and the only alternative is is to really um, have a, a global financial system that allows much greater uh, diversity and discretion at the national level in terms of how these rules are set. So, you know. Some countries may set their capital requirements at 20%. Other countries might set them at 10% because they want to be on a different point in their sort of, you know, financial innovation versus financial stability frontier. 
Um, and I think we should allow that. Um, the, the, the problem, of course, then becomes, you know, how do you deal with the regulatory arbitrage that would yeah. arise from, you know, different countries having different kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, regulatory regimes. And there, you know, I say, look, I mean, we should approach this issue in exactly the same way that we approach, let's say, you know, our imports of uh, toys from China. When we import China's toys from China, we say they better um, abide by our all by U.S. health and safety requirements. That means that if they, if they do not um, uh, um, uh, conform to, let's say, lead content requirements, then those goods don't come in. Finished. And there's not even a debate about that. Right. Um, and I don't think there's any difference with financial markets. Our rule should be the same, that any financial institution that wants to operate in the, in, in, in the U.S. jurisdiction uh, ought to, um, you know, uh, ought to um, operate by the rules set in the United States. And, uh, and, and in order to maintain those rules, the integrity of U.S. rules, um, you ought to then allow uh, um, U.S. and other countries to interfere or tax or, or um, otherwise control cross-border cross, cross financial flows to ensure that their regulatory systems um, remain, uh, their integrity isn't eroded. So it's a, it's a somewhat very different conception of where we ought to go. Uh, but I think it's really, frankly, the only realistic one. Yeah, so so uh, we don't allow toxic toys. We shouldn't allow toxic assets. Precisely. But, but let me um, partly agree with you and then partly disagree. The um, I agree with you that the harmonization thing is, is a bad idea for a different reason. Maybe maybe we agree on this. Um, you know, we, we actually have had quite an extraordinary financial global financial infrastructure. Uh, Basel one and Basel two were the products of thousands, millions, I don't know how many hours of work by experts. Now, you could argue, well, we just didn't get it right. The next time we'll get it right. And I would argue that it's not designed to be gotten right. Um, it's uh, a process that's inherently going to be run by the people with the closest, with the biggest stakes and the most information. Those would be international financial firms. Why would you expect them to give inputs to the political process that would be good for the world rather than good for them? I just, it's just... If anything, going to a globally harmonized system, and this is true for accounting and all kinds of other things, uh, the claim is made that it's going to save all these transaction costs. It could, but there's no reason to think that that would be the way the system would be designed. I would assume it would be designed by politically powerful people to benefit themselves. So I'm – given that there's no accountability, I mean who, who, who do we blame for Basel II that didn't work so well? Who do we get mad at? Who's, who loses their job? Nobody. So there's no reason to think that Basel III, with a bunch of even well-intentioned people, would do better. Basel IV, whatever we're at. I, I, I agree with you 100% on this. I, I think this is the problem that we've had with the system that, that you, you know, you, I mean, economists tend to think that if you sort of, you know, by moving these decisions from the national level to these, you know, global fora, you have de depoliticized uh, the decision making, yeah, and therefore, is, you know, is, but as you say, <laughs> it, you know, all that you've done is just privileged one set of interest over everybody yeah. else, um, and and that's exactly how the system has worked. That's exactly how the system is now working with Basel three. That's why I actually think that you should politicize the system. I agree. You know, at the national level, where you know you, the whole full course of politics can play out. Um, and, that, and that's again a sort of an argument that's pushing in in, in, the, in that direction. How about goods and people, though? How about you, you answered goods my question with respect? Yeah, you yeah. answered my question with respect yeah. to financial flows. Yeah. There, it's very clear. You know, in goods, I think we've eked out uh, most of the benefits from further liberalization. We're wasting a lot of political capital at huge costs in terms of legitimacy and so forth. And I think quite some legitimate concerns about what you know, the distributional burdens that are suffered. In people, you know, we're sort of like, you know, where we were with the trade regime in the 1950s, which is a huge amount of gain to be had. So, you know, I want to sort of see the all those trade negotiators in Geneva stop talking about the current Doha agenda. Let's start talking about uh, negotiating uh, an expansion of temporary work visa schemes around the world where the, the gains are huge. My guest today has been Danny Roderick. Danny, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Nice to be with you, Thrush.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.